Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help and enablement to uh, take in and feed on the word this morning. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would bless us with your word being understood, being desired, being lived out. We bank on the promise of Psalm 119, 130, where you have told us, Lord, the unfolding of your words gives light. We pray that we would see more clearly by the light of your word and be warmed by its radiance. We know, Lord, that the unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. Please help our understanding. Please show us more of Christ. Strengthen us, Lord. Do whatever needs to be done in our hearts by your spirit for your glory. Help me to preach. Help those listening to listen. Help us all to obey. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Do you know the difference between being simple and simplistic? Do you know the difference between simple and simplistic? David Powelson, one of my favorite Christian counselors who passed away not too long ago, in his book, How Sanctification Works, he says this, quote, Human beings do well with simple. We do poorly with complicated. And we do poorly with simplistic. True wisdom has a delightful simplicity. Foolishness either overcomplicates or oversimplifies. And on the near side of complexity is simplistic. But on the far side of complexity is simple close quote. I love that idea that if if there's a concept that you can move through and around and fully understand, then you can explain it to others in a simple way. But if there's a concept that's new to you or you don't really know, you just kind of have a quick glance of it, you only know it in a simplistic way. And when you start talking about it, people realize that's pretty simplistic. That's an oversimplification. So we want to be simple but not simplistic. Which reminds me that in 1891, Carl Elsiner owned a company that made surgical equipment, but Mr. Elsiner decided he wanted to to manufacture blades not only for doctors on the surgical table, but he wanted to make simple blades for soldiers on the battlefield. Now keep in mind, he wanted to make simple blades, not simplistic, Not something cheap that would fall apart for soldiers on the battlefield. He wanted to make simple blades for them. Mr. Elsiner wisely knew that a good blade with a reliably sharp edge for a soldier on the battlefield could do more than cut if it had a uniquely flat tip then that blade could be used to pry open the lid of canned food and save lives as soldiers eat canned food. Or if that flat edge was wedged between 
screws and bolts. It would help with rifle disassembly and cleaning and assembly. So you know what Carl Elsener did in the late 1800s? <clears throat> he combined all the complexities of war and the lives of soldiers and the complexities of how to make blades and knives that he was making for surgical companies. He brought all this together in a way that was not simplistic, but in a way that was masterfully simple. You know what Carl created? In the late 1800s, he combined these ideas into a compact tool called the Swiss Army Knife. The Swiss Army Knife. Have you seen that icon of utility and good design and durability? Usually that little little red or little black device. It's got the Swiss cross logo on the side. I'm sure you've seen one of those, right? I received one as a gift a few years ago, and I received one this year from Kyle and Ariel, the Horton wedding. That was one of Kyle's groomsman gifts, and I got to share in on some of those groomsman gifts. Got a fresh, shiny Swiss Army knife again this year. And I use that thing all the time. It has a toothpick, which I use, and it's reusable. Don't judge me. It has tweezers that I've used to pull splinters out of my hand, fixing our leaning back fence. It has a knife blade, a bottle opener, a corkscrew, a screwdriver. But you know what? The most consistent use of that little Swiss Army knife that I've been using this year really the last year during the pandemic, I've been using it in a way I never thought I would use it. It makes for a great door opener. I don't mean picking locks. I mean when you come up to a public door and you have that little device and you use that to pull open a door handle so that you don't touch it, less germs in a pandemic age. That's what I've been using it for. And you may wonder, why is a sermon starting out talking about Swiss Army knives and simple and simplistic and how he opens the door. All that was really just to get you to focus on this next sentence, which is going to pivot us to the the scripture, okay? Here's the sentence. I am amazed at how there continues to be new and ever-expanding scenarios that the Swiss Army knife proves useful for. Similarly, I am amazed at how a little compact Bible verse, a little prayer that we're going to look at, has such compact utility, but it's so profound, it fits into every occasion of the Christian life. I want to show you that verse today. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. I know here at Park Hills, we are used to hearing whole chapters, whole paragraphs. Today, one verse. One verse. 2 Thessalonians 3.5. This is on page 990 if, you're, if you need to grab one of the Bibles under the seats around you. 2 Thessalonians 3.5. I know you're there, and I know you're ready to read it, but it's going to be such a short read. Let me, let me give you just a little bit more peak of interest, okay? Some verses require just a great huge introduction because the moment we read it, it's going to just fly by so quickly, you might, you might forget it. So 
a, a little bit more, if you'll let me, a little bit more intro of this verse. This verse is so extremely compact, easy to memorize, simple to remember, but profound enough to bring fresh spiritual insight, encouragement, and strength into nearly every occasion you may find yourself in. I'm not overhyping the verse. I promise you. I'm not overhyping it. And this verse is one of my favorites. It's one that I love to close worship services with. It's one that I love to close Sunday school Bible studies with. I love to write it on cards, send it in text messages. It's a verse for all seasons. It's a verse for Christians in all stages of their sanctification. It is a verse for those Christians who are struggling with depression. It is a verse for those Christians struggling with apathy. It is a great verse for grandparents frustrated with what's going on with their own children and grandchildren. It's a great verse for those who are frustrated with what's going on at work and have to plow through things. It's a wonderful verse for students beginning their days in college. It's a wonderful verse for college graduates who are looking out to their career. It's a verse that has appropriate light. It's a verse that meets you where you are, but when taken to heart, it doesn't leave you where you are. Let's gaze at it. Let's look at it together. 2 Thessalonians 3.5 says this. It's very short. It says this. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Period. Or as Raina taught me, full stop. You know, that slang phrase for that, that's the end, full stop. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. It's a prayer guide. That verse is a prayer, it's a simple prayer. It guides how we ought to pray. It whets our appetite for hopefully what we would want others to pray for us. There are many prayers in the Bible, some long, some short. The one Jake read for us earlier out of Ephesians, a little bit longer than this one. There's even shorter prayers than this one, though, like that one-word prayer found in the Psalms, the word help. Help, that's the shortest prayer in the Bible. This is not the shortest prayer in the Bible, but I think it's one of those Swiss Army Knife type prayers that you will find continual use for. You want to take it with you wherever you go. The brevity here is profound. To help us understand this simple one-verse prayer this morning, to learn to apply it, and my goal this morning is to persuade you that you need it, you want it, and that you'll start praying this prayer for yourself and others. That's, that's my goal this morning. To do all that, we're just going to ask three questions. 
three short little questions of this one verse. We're going to bounce along to each question, close out our time. Here are the three questions we're going to ask to help ourselves understand this simple verse and apply it. Here's the three questions. Number one, what situation caused Paul to pen this prayer? What situation caused Paul to pen this prayer? Secondly, what does this prayer teach us about our hearts, the human heart? What does this prayer, simple prayer, teach us about our hearts? And then number three, thirdly, what happens when this prayer is experienced and lived out? What happens when this prayer is answered affirmatively and God does this in a person's life, your life? I pray that we would understand the beautiful simplicity here and experience it more and more. And I pray that this verse would have an aroma of lasting effect in our lives, yours and mine. And as often as you think of me, if you might not see me as often, as often as you think of me, I would encourage you to pray this prayer for me. And likewise, I hope as often as you come to my mind, as you will, I pray and hope that I would pray this prayer for you. Whenever you come to my mind. First, first question, what situation caused Paul to pen this prayer? What's the immediate context? Well, that's what we're going to look at. We sometimes look at verses out of context. It's sometimes dangerous to take one verse and extract it and talk about it. Maybe you've been to Hobby Lobby and seen a a one-verse poster, or you've gotten a little desk monument. Two of the verses that are so often thrown out in popular culture and Christian circles that people have no clue what the context is would be the verse that says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. And we take it as the most comforting Christian verse, and we forget that was spoken in the midst of church discipline. Now, that doesn't mean that verse is not comforting. It just means don't forget to use it in church discipline moments, Matthew 18. And then there's a verse, I believe it's Jeremiah 29, 11 or so. I've even heard some of you quote it to me. And I'm not, I'm not harping on you right now, but I had it in a, in a bathroom growing up on a poster. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, to give you a hope, to give you a future. And we love to give that to graduates. Do you know the context of that verse? It's dark. It's exile. God's people were exiled. They were in a foreign land. They were oppressed. Everything was going wrong. They felt like they had no hope. And he gave that to them to say, just because I didn't pull you out of exile yesterday or tomorrow, I have plans and hope for you, even though things are not as you want them to be right now. So rather than use that verse to just pat ourselves on the back, God's going to give me the job I want. God's going to make all my family show up for Christmas. That verse is telling us, if things are not going the way you think they ought to, remember, God still has good plans for you. So that little sidebar of verses taken out of context is necessary because when we come to this verse, this is a very easy verse to just rip out of context and just put a bunch of smiley faces around it when you text it to somebody. Do you know the situation that Paul penned this prayer for? That's our first question. 
Well, Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church, and they were in danger of adopting false views of Christ's return, his second coming. Some thought the day of the Lord has come, as 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 tells us they thought. But in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way. Paul is writing to clear up misconceptions. So Paul wrote that they might not be uninformed about how Jesus would come and how they should be living as they wait for Christ to return. The Thessalonian church had another issue, though. They had intense trials. They were enduring hardship, persecutions, and afflictions, as chapter 1, verse 4 tells us. They were undergoing great suffering. And this is the wider context of which Paul pins this prayer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's the context of confusion about Christ's return, intense persecution and suffering, and the need for endurance. That's the immediate context. And you know what? There's an even more immediate context found in the paragraph of which this prayer concludes the paragraph. And I want to show you something fascinating about that so that you can grasp the situation for which Paul penned this prayer. Here's what's fascinating. If you were to divide up the book of 2 Thessalonians into sections, every section ends with a prayer. So if we're going to look at one verse, chapter 3, verse 5, we should know what section that is and why this particular prayer wraps up that section. So do a little flipping with me for a moment. Flip back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, the opening chapter is a thanksgiving and encouragement for persecuted Christians. This is verses 3 to 12. And then there's the prayer. Look at verse 11 and 12. 11 and 12, that's the prayer. We're not going to read it aloud. I just want to show you where it is. That's, that's a prayer. Go back and study that later. And then if you look over in chapter 2, where he refutes false claims about the day of the Lord, where's the prayer there in chapter 2? Well, it's right at the end. Look at verses 16 and 17. There's another prayer there. And then if you go to section 3, if you go to chapter 3, maybe a third section, there's this little section about forward progress and consistent obedience in the Christian life, and it it ends with a prayer in verse 5. That's the one we're looking at. And if you were dividing up the book, the last section of the book in chapter 3, Verses 6 through 15, where Paul gets into the problems of idlers, people living idle as they wrongly wait for Christ's return. Where's the prayer there? Well, the prayer there is in verse 16. Put your eyes there. Chapter 3, verse 16. There's a little prayer right there. So what we take from this is that the situation that caused Paul to pen this prayer is a situation in which prayer is infused in everything he's telling them. He's not telling them anything without prayer attached. It's a situation of confusion about Christ's return and persecution, and it's a situation here, most specifically within chapter 3, these first couple verses, about how they could have forward progress. If we want to make the lens as tight as possible on what situation is Paul trying to speak into for this prayer, it would actually be found in verse 4, the verse right before the verse we're looking at today. Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3, 4 says, We have confidence 
in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things we command. And then Paul prays. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. So we learn much from the situation. Just from the context alone and the immediate context from verse 4, we learn that the situation that caused Paul to pen this prayer is he wants to give the Thessalonian church fuel for their obedience, both current, present obedience and future active obeying of God's commands. That's what verse 4 is hopeful for. And then verse 5, he actually prays this prayer. Brothers and sisters, what will fuel your present obedience? What will enable your present active following of the Lord's commands and even the ones in the future? It has a lot to do with this prayer in verse 5. And Paul could have singled out specific groups like the elders or deacons or church members by age or gender, but he offers this prayer without Specification, it's for all in the Thessalonian church. That's the situation. He wants them to obey actively in the moment, in the midst of all they're going on, all the confusion, all the problems, all the complexities of life. That's the situation. So let's do a one-to-one match for a second. Do you find your present situation being in any way similar to the Thessalonian situation? Do you find yourself in this very moment today on the Lord's Day, this week, this month, do you find yourself having any confusions, any pressures put upon you? Do you find yourself needing to obey the commands of God? Is that something you're wanting to do in this season of your life? Obey the commands of God? Obey the things he commands now and even in the future? If you want to obey the things of God, then this prayer should be of interest to you because this is a prayer that will boost you, fuel you, propel you into obedience. Now that we see that situation, let's, let's tackle really the meat, the two questions of the passage today. What does this prayer teach us about our hearts and what happens when this prayer is experienced? What does this prayer teach us about our hearts? Well, look again at it. It's so short. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This verse reminds me that our hearts are directed by God himself, not just ourselves. There's a few lessons that we can learn about our hearts that teaches us. This first one is very simple. It's that the Lord directs hearts to glorious realities. It's his work, not just our work. That's all coming from the verse, all coming from the simple prayer. The Holy Spirit who breathed out these words through the human agent Paul walks around the full orbit of the complexities of the human heart And ends up making this simple prayer. It's not a simplistic prayer. It's not as if Paul was kind of wondering, I don't really know what to pray for. Let me just say something cute that the Thessalonians will kind of smile at and they'll keep listening to my letter. No, the Holy Spirit fully understands the human heart and the dynamics of it and the complexities of it. 
and inspires Paul to give this simple prayer. It teaches us about our hearts that God directs them. The original word here, in the original language for that word direct, it means to literally guide and make straight something that would be prone to get off course or be crooked or lose its way. To guide or make straight. Consider why Paul didn't pray. Excuse me. Consider why Paul didn't just command instead of pray. Why he didn't just command them. Hey, direct your own hearts. Fix your own hearts, guys. Fix them. Deal with it. Make sure your heart's straight, focused on the things it should be. This verse is not an imperative command. This verse is not an indicative. Without getting into the complexities of the Greek language, there's very few of you in here that would even want to hear some of that right now. This verse is so unique because it's not an imperative or an indicative, meaning something that we do in a command or something that God automatically does. It's, it's an imperative. It's an indicative. It's not those things. You know what this verse is? It's called optative, which is a weird word for saying this is just what is possible. This is a prayer that is possible. This prayer, and I don't want to offend you by saying this, this prayer is not guaranteed that it will keep happening in increasing measures in your life right now. It's possible that it could, but it's not certain that that it will in increasing measures right now for you, which is why Paul prays it. If this was automatic, Paul would not need to pray it. If this verse just automatically happens for, for everyone, especially Christians, Paul would not need to pray it. We know from our own statement of faith, don't we, that our sanctification can be impaired by our own sinful ways. We can impair our graces and comforts as we stray from the Lord, which is why we pray things like this prayer. We see a simple truth here that God directs hearts. If you think and we forgot to explain what that means, well, let me just explain it as simply as I know how. God alone can change a human heart. Only God alone can transform and change a human heart. This is why Paul prays, may the Lord direct your hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else, for from it flow the springs of life. There's verses in scripture that say we can guard our hearts. We can watch out for them and, and guard them, but we cannot change our own heart. That is the work of God himself. We might even be lowercase d director of a heart, meaning we might be a vessel or an agent God used to, to bring the word to someone. We have real choices to make. We are responsible for the things that we love, what we give our affections to. We have a real will. We're not robots. And yet, capital D, directing of our hearts, if it's anything good at all, you're not going to take credit for that. That's because God wrought it in your heart. God is the director of hearts. And by directing our hearts, what, 
What that means is the affections of our heart are set and aligned in the ways that they should. Our affections are rightly ordered. That's what it means to have hearts directed rightly. We can't do our own heart surgery. In Deuteronomy 10.16, when God tells Israel, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your hearts, in Deuteronomy 10.16, that was an invitation for Israel to ask God to do that in them because they couldn't do that for themselves. Just like this prayer, if you're like me, you're tempted to see this prayer and think, sweet, I'm just going to make this prayer happen right now. I'm going to make myself directed to God's love and the steadfastness of Christ. I'm just going to do it. This prayer, though, it's so profound because it says, who does the directing of our heart? God. We might ask him to do it, but if it happens, he's the one who does it. That's what it teaches us about our hearts. We know from Philippians 2 that We fear the Lord in trembling. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. It's a mystery, isn't it? We have real choices to make, but we can't ultimately change our hearts. Another lesson we learn here is that our hearts are prone to wonder. Our hearts are not automatically directed to what they should be. Maybe this time of year you get a lot of mailers in the mail and you find your heart directed to sales from certain stores or you find your heart directed to just being caught up in thoughts of materialism or even things with family. You find your heart drifting from the things of God and you just start focusing on earthly, human, material things. Our hearts are prone to wonder, aren't they? This verse teaches us that Unless God directs our hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ, this verse doesn't provide another alternative that you'll get there on your own. We see an implicit lesson here that our hearts wonder. Our hearts are wayward. Our hearts are sinful. Our hearts are like the person who goes to an ice cream shop. How many of you have been to Amy's Ice Cream or another place around town, frozen yogurt? Many of you, right? If you walk into a place like that and you see a board of all different types of flavors, some flavors you love, some flavors are okay, but there's some flavors you hate, you despise, you can't stand. Could you walk into that ice cream shop, look at the board, choose the flavor that you absolutely hate that's terrible to you, and begin eating it and enjoy it with a smile? No, you would be hypocritical, you would be faking everyone out. What does that illustrate for us? It illustrates that our hearts love what they love. And even if we wanted to, on the flip of a switch, say, I want to love that instead today than that, because they're out of my favorite flavors. The only flavors they have are the ones I hate. You can't just suddenly make your heart love the flavors you hate. Brothers and sisters, we all know the truth that deep down, the deepest layers, when you get to the core of your heart, isn't it true that you cannot change what you love. If you know that to be true, then you will know the profundity of this prayer, the rightness of it. God, direct my heart to your love and the steadfastness of Christ. 
I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, what was your heart most directed towards this past week? If it wasn't the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ, what was it that so captivated your heart this past week? I know our hearts are complex and many things come and go through our hearts, different affections, different times, but what was, what was the dominant affection of your heart this past week? Does it align with this profoundly simple prayer? Another truth embedded in this prayer about our hearts. We could keep going all day. Scripture is inexhaustible, isn't it? It's a different nuance, but here it is. There's a truth about our hearts from this little verse that prayer affects human hearts. Does that sound too basic for you to hear this morning in church? I hope it encourages you. Prayer has the power to affect human hearts. Let's be stirred up by way of reminder that prayer can affect many things. And we've prayed for many things in this service already. But this verse shows us fundamentally, without a doubt, that the heart is assuredly one of the things that prayer can affect. Paul is directing this prayer to the Lord, that the Lord would do what? Direct hearts. Will you pray this for yourself, family, pastors, friends, your church? There is a real danger in making your knowledge of God so academic, so heady, such an informational download that your heart affections are not being stirred up continually. Experientially, things are running dry. This verse then takes aim at the heart. Oh, that our head, heart, and hands would, would all be working together. So that brings us to maybe the most juicy question. What happens when this prayer is experienced? If we know the situation that Paul has written this prayer and infused it into, namely Christians who need to actively obey in the moment and keep obeying in the future, obeying commands of God. And we know that this simple prayer teaches us many things about our hearts. Is that enough? Can we just walk away now and think, okay, we learned some things about the human heart. Let's get to the, the meat. What happens when this prayer is experienced? And before I do my best to try to share a few things of that, ask yourself, have you tasted and seen and experienced this verse? I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking if you've heard things about Jesus before. I am asking, do you know yourself to be a person who has had their heart directed to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ, not just one time back in the past, actively today, right now, in this season? Is that the type of of heart that you have? Is it directed to those things? If not, be encouraged. That's why this prayer is here. That's why I love this verse and go back to it so many times because my own heart wanders away from the things of God. So this third and final question, what happens when this prayer is experienced? 
Well, I think the best way I could begin to start describing that is actually to switch translations on you. Let me tell you how the NIV translates this verse. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. You see that word steadfastness could be translated perseverance or endurance. But that little word to, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. In the original language, that word actually means into. It has a directional component to it. It's not just theoretical or abstract, but, but into a real reality that exists. Just like you could throw a ball into a field. Into. When this verse is experienced, your heart is not just directed in kind of a general tra- trajectory where you, where you hear of some things of God's love and you hear of some things of Christ's perseverance and endurance. Your heart is cast headlong into the love of God and you are caught up in the love of God. Isn't that what you want? Poets, philosophers, scientists can say whatever they want about the meaning of life. You know it to be true, don't you, that life is only worth living when there is love. And not just human to human, but love of God poured into our hearts. Your life will have no satisfaction unless you know the love of God experientially. I can say that for the many seasons where I've drifted from having my heart directed to God's love. But the many times he has graciously directed my heart to his love, those are the most satisfying times of life. I don't know what you're going through right now. But I don't have to think hard and wonder. A great thing for you right now would be if your heart would be directed even deeper still into the love of God. God's love is a covenantal love. It's better than we deserve. It's strong, it's enduring, it's redemptive. It seeks us out before we seek it out. God's love is even poured out on his enemies. God's love is transformational. It turns enemies into friends, even adopted children. God's love is powerful. God's love is beyond my little limited description or attempts to explain it. This is why you've got to read the whole Bible. You've got to read his revealed love, and then you've got to experience it in your hearts. Not just as if this is a textbook. This is a loving relationship. If your hearts are experiencing this verse, what happens? It means you have an active, personal walk with God, a loving relationship. There's many of you in this room who have been in love before or you're in love now. Doesn't that change your life when you're in love with someone? Love. Not just love as you define it, the love of God. That pure, holy love without blemish that's excellent, pure, and perfect Some folks have a hard time believing God really loves them. Some Christians struggle with the idea that God loves them. Please pray this prayer. If you know someone like that, pray this prayer for them. 
God loves to answer this prayer that your heart would be directed into his love and you would experience it. What happens when you live this verse out? Well, you're so caught up in the love of God that you are filled with awe and wonder and warmth. It's not a just drudgery chore to think that you have to read your Bible or show up around the people of God. You are so caught up in God's love that the greatest commandment in all of Scripture, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. You're caught up when just living out that command. That's what you want to be living. And then flowing from that, you begin to love other people. All that comes when your heart is directed to the love of God first. We love because he first loved us. And when you're living out this verse it's not that there's two things competing. Are you going to live for God's love today? Think about that, dwell on that, live in that. Or are you going to think about Christ's endurance? Because you've got to pick. They're mutually excuse, exclusive. No, this verse puts them together because they are together. Christ's steadfastness is the historical reality of God's love. So if you are living out this verse and experiencing it, you are a person captivated by the person and work of Christ. His endurance flowing from his character. You will be humbled and strengthened. Imagine if you're fighting temptation and, and you're caught up in the endurance of Christ. You will be armed with the same way of thinking to resist sin, just like Christ did. Imagine if you fall into temptation and you fail. If you are caught up into the endurance of Christ, you will know that his endurance purchased your salvation and you have forgiveness. If I were to try to explain to you the endurance needed for a marathon runner, what would I do? I'd probably start telling you their strict diet, the way they train relentlessly, the way they maintain their feet and shoes and equipment, the way they do proper breathing, the way they just keep pushing mile after mile and push through pain. There's a lot of things we can start talking about to show you the endurance of a marathon runner. Quite simply, it would just be telling you how many miles they run. Well, how can I help you see the endurance of Christ. I'm going to trust God can do that. My attempts are weak. But one thing I can say to you is, you know how hard it is to resist sin in that, that little window of time that maybe sin's tempting you? Imagine that every second, every moment of Jesus' entire life, he never sinned. He had endurance that never gave in to sin. He had endurance to teach his disciples when they were slow to believe. He had endurance to minister and show compassion to crowds who crowded in on his schedule. He had endurance to face mockery and rejection. He had endurance that went all the way to the cross and then the grave and an endurance that walked right back out of the grave. And he rose again. It takes a lot of different types of endurance depending on what you're doing. Whether you're a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, a young mom with kids, the emotional endurance that takes, the steadfastness. There's mental, emotional, physical endurance. There's different types. Jesus Christ had them all in a holy direction of pleasing the Father, loving God. His endurance accomplished atonement. Jesus wasn't enduring the things of this life in a fallen world just to flex his muscle and then go on. 
Jesus let his endurance be such that he would shed his own blood and die on a cross to save you. If you don't know Jesus today and you want to know God's love, look to the endurance Christ had to be a willing substitute in your place on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God. He let people spit on his face, pull out his beard, mock him, stretch him out on a wooden cross, nail his hands and feet. His blood ran down. And at no point did he curse God or mistrust his father. His endurance was ready that day because the night before he had already been praying with great endurance, sweating drops of blood, being willing to receive the cup of God's wrath in your place. Many of you know the story of Christ dying on the cross. But is your heart directed to that? Not just do you know it factually. Is your heart directed to that? Do you see that as your salvation? That as ultimately precious? To experience this verse means to be walking with God in a personal relationship with him, knowing his love, being strengthened by his endurance and steadfastness, being humbled being encouraged, being grateful. And to not experience this verse ultimately means that you would go to hell. If you're a Christian, you've already begun to taste this verse, to know God's love. I want to encourage you to keep knowing more of it because in heaven, this verse is still applicable. In heaven, we will relish the glories of God's love and reflect on and praise his endurance for all time. This verse never wears out. So start praying it today. So much flows from this profound, simple prayer. We began today considering the similarities of a Swiss army knife, which may sound trivial. But we were trying to show, yeah, that's, that's pretty compact and useful. This verse is extremely compact. It's extremely useful. A Swiss army knife, it can break, it can rust out, you can lose it, it can be stolen. This verse, when it is lived out and lodged in your heart, it will rescript what you're doing every day, what your heart loves. It will rescript how you pray when you're in a hospital room and you don't know what to pray for someone when there's grieving family around. Pray this verse for them. Help them to trust God still loves them even though someone is dying right there. Pray this verse when you're at school, when you're at work, when no one's around, when you are with others. Pray this verse and keep remembering God does it. We can't do it. God does it. This simple prayer calls us to remember the possibility of God's work to change the direction of our heart. To see God's glory through his love, through the endurance of Christ, his steadfast son, to see the gospel. Pray to that end. Because 2 Thessalonians 3.5 doesn't become a verse that's just seasonal. It's a verse that goes on for eternity. Why not pray it now? Why not pray it the rest of today? Why not keep praying it for your church family?
Let's close in prayer with just that verse as our prayer. I want to pray it slowly for us. I want to invite you to pray it with me. Let's all pray. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, may you direct our hearts into your love and steadfast endurance of Christ. Amen.